You're listening to the Safety Work Podcast, episode 109. Today, we're asking the question, do safety performance indicators mean the same thing to different stakeholders? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name is David Proven. And I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety Work Podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, let's talk about today's episode. And today we're going to talk about safety performance measures again. And we've talked about it a few times, but do you want to sort of introduce how we're going to talk about it today? Uh, Sure, David. Before we get too far into it, I thought I would mention that I was actually listening to you on another podcast recently. So, and I I promised, I promised them when I did an episode with them that I'd do a cross promotion and uh, I don't know that I've actually done it on this podcast. So I'll shout out now to the um, Safety Labs by Slice, a little bit weird, a podcast sponsored by a safety knife, but it's a really, really good interview based safety podcast. The host of it, Mary Conquest, is a fantastic interviewer. Um, so she's done a recent interview with you, David. She did a recent interview with me. She's just done one, I think, with Rosa Carrillo. So, yeah, some fantastic interviews with thinkers sort of across the breadth of safety. So if you're bored with our podcast, then switch over to that one instead. Yeah, Drew, because, I mean, we're not an interview podcast. I mean, I guess the majority of podcasts are interview-based, interview but... Um, you had a lot of fun talking to Mary, and I saw that you'd done it. Uh, maybe even the episode just before me, and you know a number of the people that I hold in very high regard in the safety space have done uh, interviews on the Slice podcast. So um, if you don't like, you know, Drew, well, maybe if you do, or or if you don't like Drew and uh, my format around what we do here, it's a great podcast in the safety world. Um, so head over there. Yeah, but let's get into today's episode. Uh, so we've talked about performance measures quite a few times on the podcast. Uh, which I think is a reflection both of how interested people tend to be in metrics and also how much of the safety research, I guess, sort of clusters around issues around measurement. So in episode 35, we just talked generally about leading and lagging indicators. In episode 55, uh, we looked at Matthew Hallowell's work around the statistical validity of lost time injury frequency rates. Uh, Episode 76, we did actually do one of our rare interviews, which was uh, David talking to Greg Smith about, was this capacity-based performance metrics? Yeah, and looking at kind of like how we might understand safety capacity in our organisations. I mean, it wasn't specifically about performance measures, but it it definitely lent itself towards the things you would look at in your organisation for safety. Yep. And then in episode 97, we talked about uh, whether it was a good idea to link safety performance to bonus pay. So if you're interested in metrics, go back and listen to any of those episodes. Um, but most of those episodes, we were talking about performance indicators as a tool for decision-making. So basically, the key question almost in all of them is sort of what's a valid and useful indicator? This paper is a little bit different. It's sort of going beyond safety performance measures simply as a measure. And looking at the broader organizational meaning that we have, that we attach to metrics and how that influences behavior. 
David, I thought we might sort of like begin with just a quote from the paper, which says that studying the meaning of a safety performance indicator beyond its eponymous function is therefore important to gain a greater understanding of the conditions for indicator effectiveness and usability. And this includes studying the multiple meanings that may be assigned to an indicator. So that's what we're looking at today is sort of the multiple meanings that we can have around the same indicator. I think it's useful, Drew, to think about indicators, you know, like this. So, you know, on one hand, we think that a safety indicator is something that we look at in isolation and we, is it going up? Is it going down? What decisions do we make? But in this paper, what we'll talk about is, you know, it can be a very central feature for the overall functioning of an organisation and one that can be, I guess, used to, you know, if we think about it as a, as a performance metric, it can really shape the way that the whole organisation operates, which, um, you know, has, I guess, advantages and unintended consequences as well. Yeah, and, and I, I think whether or not you are a fan of measurement in general or particular measures, we can acknowledge that anything which has the capacity to influence things positively has the capacity to influence things negatively as well. So, you know, if we believe that key performance indicators are effective, then we have to believe that having the wrong key performance indicators can be ineffective. Um, and in social science, where I mean, social science is filled with people who are typically fairly uncomfortable with numbers, but pretty much everyone acknowledges that the power that numbers have and what we choose to turn into a number reveals a lot about what we hold important. And the way in which we turn things into numbers reveals a lot about the logic that's driving the way that we both act and give meaning to our actions. Yeah, Drew, I think that's really important about, like you said, whether we like it or not. You know, this is, and this is the way that, you know, I think this is the reality of organizational life. Like we turn lots of things into numbers. So it's really helpful to understand how, you know, some of these numbers become very powerful in our organization in shaping the way that organizations, you know, people in organizations make decisions, but you know, organizations as a whole think about, you know, their, their overall success. So, Drew, look, today's today's paper, you know, the title of today's paper, and I know you love a good title, um, but today's paper is called Tracking the Right Path, Safety Performance Indicators as Boundary Objects in Air Ambulance Services. Um, four authors, um, Jan Hayes, who, who we know from RMIT here in, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, Tony Slotsvik from um, Stubbinger University, um, Carl McRae from Nottingham, and um, Kenneth uh, Pedersen from Stubbinger as well. And I know, Drew, you know some of these authors are very well. Do you want to give us any sort of background into, you know, the authors of this paper? David, you've put me on the spot because rarely we haven't actually written a little uh, biography for these authors. Mostly, I think, just because these are pretty well-known people in the safety space. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you look up any sort of history of the journal Safety Science, you'll see all four of these names occurring multiple times. And given that this is a case study paper, I don't really think the we need to know a lot about the authors. Uh, you're often when we're looking at something like a literature review or using any sort of particular method, then you might want to sort of inquire how much to take what the authors give you on face value versus how much you want to check it for yourself. But this is a very straightforward reporting of a real example that the four authors were involved in. So. Yeah, very experienced authors, but it actually probably doesn't matter for interpreting or reading this paper. Yeah, Drew, I apologise for putting you on the spot. I think I know Ken Pedersen and Jan Hayes, you know, are very widely published in the safety world and 
you know, also serve, you know, some time on editorial boards of journals and things like that. So I think when we get to case study research and, you know, qualitative research, it's it, it, it's helpful to know that the, the researchers involved are, you know, very, very experienced, incredible researchers uh, in kind of the safety science world. Uh, you know, this this journal only became available on the 20th of March 2023 online. So this this paper is only a month old. Um, it's published open access. So we'll put a link uh, to the show notes and on LinkedIn. Um, and I think, Drew, the other thing I wouldn't mind your thoughts on is, you know, in this paper, um, it didn't seem like, well, you know, the, the question that this particular paper answers wasn't the primary research question of, you know, during the data gathering phase. You know, these researchers went and did a whole bunch of interviews in the air ambulance service and and this issue of availability became a really central topic in terms of like the performance of the service provider in relation to the availability of services. And that seemed to spark this whole paper. This whole paper seemed to come out of the the data that was gathered uh, from a particular research project, not even though that this uh, this paper wasn't the originally intended paper that was was going to be written. Yeah, I really like the detective work actually that led to this. So they noticed that there was this contradiction in their data, that some people thought that the availability performance was good and some people thought it was bad. So basically you've got the exact same thing and different participants are giving you conflicting stories about whether it was getting better or worse. And so rather than either try to sort of like reconcile the truth and decide who was you know, telling the truth, or try to sort of fudge it and ignore the issue because you've got contradictory data. They thought, actually, there's something interesting going on here. Let's do a couple more interviews specifically to get at why are people telling us different stories about the same thing? You know, it, it's a number. People shouldn't be disagreeing about what the number is. And it was that sort of curiosity and that detective work that led to a really interesting story. So yeah, that's basically the background of this paper is they were doing a case study of transition of air ambulance services from one private provider to another private provider. So you've basically got the sort of health service and then under that health service, you've got patient transport. And then under that, you've got the air ambulance service, but then they contract out for the actual pilots and aircraft. Um, the contract was with one organization for quite a number of years, was shifting to a new organization, just basically because there'd been a competitive tender, the new organization had won the contract, actually in part because they'd promised higher availability of aircraft for lower cost. And so it was this scenario that the researchers were studying when the issue of how do you actually measure the availability and did the availability go up or down during this transition became the focus of what they were studying. Yes, yeah, so I mean, I mean, you've got four, you know, how you describe that situation where you've got a, an incoming, uh, I guess, contractor, if you like, Promising certain things, and we've got four main groups that are that are that are part of the data gathering for this for this research. You've got the actual procurement organisation, so the company that's you know going out and and tendering for these different service providers. You've got the incoming operator, you've got the outgoing operator, and you've got the pilots. And you know you've got several interview interviews in each group. And I guess you know the pilots in this case, you know, it's a little bit like sometimes we see in in contracting environments in the safety world where different companies. Uh, will take on the overarching contract and then the people who actually perform the work will be the same people, but maybe they just wear a different, you know, a different logo on their shirt when they're performing those services. Yeah, so, so when we start talking about the pilots, we'll get into more detail about 
how sort of they felt about the rebadging. But the way they the way they structure the paper and the way that we'll go through it in our discussion is they basically tell the story from the point of view of the four groups. Firstly, from the procurer, secondly, from the outgoing contractor, then the incoming contractor, and then the pilots. And then they sort of bring it all together to talk about uh, what these different stories mean for the notion of availability. So David, if you're happy, should we just sort of go through the four groups? Yeah, I think so. Let, let's, let's talk about the four different groups and how they think about this, this idea of availability. Sure. Okay, so starting with the procurer. So this is the air ambulance service. They operate two types of aircraft, fixed wing and helicopters. This case study is just for the fixed wing contract. So when you're running an air ambulance service, availability already sort of has two different meanings. Uh, one of them is overall as an air ambulance service, how available are you? So basically someone is sick, they need to be transported. Are you able to transport them? So availability at that sort of top level is overall what the service is trying to achieve. Um, but then you've also got the more specific availability, which is looking at contractor performance, because there's lots of reasons why there might not be an aircraft that aren't the contractor's fault. If you're in the middle of a blizzard, you're not available, but it also shouldn't count against the contractor performance. So second meaning of availability is, is the contractor providing pilots and aircraft at the right rate? Um, and what they noticed is in their previous contract, they were averaging availability over time, which might seem to make sense because you know, that's really what matters is not you know, your performance on a particular day, but measured over a couple of months, how often is the service available? How often is it not? But what they were worried was happening was if the contractor was doing particularly well in any given period, they would slack off. <laughs> they would reduce availability even though they were staying above the target because they knew they had the margin. So you know, to save costs, they'd transport aircraft out of the areas where they knew they were gonna meet the targets into areas where they weren't gonna meet the targets just so that everything stayed just above the target. And they were worried that you know, this was a kind of perverse incentive that they weren't getting the contract performance. Whereas they had a slightly different contract structure for the helicopter service. And so for the new contract, they thought, okay, what we could do is learn from the two different contracts and come up with a new contract, which uh, would more likely sort of drive the behaviors that we want, leading overall to better genuine availability. Um, but part of the paradox they had, and a lot of contractors have this, is you don't actually want to penalize your subcontractors too much. Certainly you don't want to drive your own subcontractor out of business. <laughs> So there's still a bit of a perverse incentive when you put in these performance penalties that you don't necessarily want to actually penalize someone for worse availability because then they have less money and then they're less available. So there's limited ability on the part of the procurement agency to actually prevent poor performance. But there's a lot of opportunity to use both the contract and public pressure to sort of incentivize as much as possible as much availability as they can get. Uh, so that was their sort of goal and belief is that they could, with a better contract, incentivize the subcontractor. But what they found is that the media started reporting on these availability statistics. And so even though they had this quite sophisticated contract and this quite sophisticated way of measuring availability, 
obviously the media didn't want that. The media just wanted a raw percentage and started reporting this raw percentage. So the procurement agency sort of ended up almost internally having to use the media's definition of availability because that was what was being reported. That was what government ministers were asking about. That's what they were getting phone calls about. And that sort of started to drive some of their own understanding of what was important. If the media is reporting a certain percentage, well, you've got to make that certain percentage look good, which means you have to make the procurement organ, the the contractors look good against that measure as well, or at least give you performance against that measure. Andrew, I know you've done a little bit of work in rail and, you know, some of our listeners would know that I spent a bit of time in the rail industry. And I think when I was reading through this paper, I was thinking a lot about on-time running of your train services. And, you know, there's some very um, clear targets that get set by by governments and get reported publicly around the uh, the on-time running of, of train services. And even though there's a whole bunch of factors, you know, complex factors which play into the contractual agreements between governments and, and rail service providers around, you know, the on-time running, at the end of the day, the public really only wants to know how many trains are on time. You know, they don't worry too much about, you know, what sort of factors get included or not included into, you know, whether trains uh, don't run on time or not. So, you know, overall, those organisations, even though they've got some really complex ways of negotiating with government over service delivery, when it comes to the overall percentage, you know, the, the company ends up really measuring itself based on what the public measures themselves on. And that sort of simplified measure leads to all of these really perverse incentives. For example, if you cancel a train half an hour before it's due to depart, you no longer need to count that. That train's no longer running late. On the other hand, a train once a train is 10 minutes late, it's already late. There's no incentive for it running on time now. You may as well just let it be late. And let all the other trains behind it be on time. Yeah. If you measure it by a raw percentage of how many trains are on time, then once it's late, it's late. Um, and you run into similar things with things like um, uh, how we measure waiting times for elective surgery. Often that becomes a big political issue. And if it turns, if the media is like reporting average waiting time, that drives one sort of behaviour. If the media is reporting the number of people who had to wait more than six months, that drives a totally different behaviour. Yeah, that's a great example, Drew. So we can try to have like really sophisticated measures that avoid this these perverse incentives. But then we get driven into more simplified measures because that's what people want to hear about. Uh, we right to move on to the providers? Yeah, let's, let's, let's keep going. Yeah, please. Okay, so our second group here is the outgoing provider. So remember, these are the people who've just lost the contract. So they're feeling really hard done by. And as we'll get into, they are not just feeling hard done by because they've lost the contract, but because they believe that they unfairly lost the contract because they lost it to an organization that was making promises that they couldn't meet. So this is the cat classic case. You've, you've got an in-situ provider. In order to drive competition, you open it up to public tender. You know, Ideally, the market's sort of supposed to solve these problems. But then someone comes in who doesn't know what it takes to run the service because they haven't had to run it and wins the contract based on promises that they're not going to meet. But... It's too late. They've already won the contract. The original contract has already lost it. And one of the challenges that the outgoing provider has is they're about to lose all of their pilots to the new organization. So even though they know they've already lost the contract, even though they know there's a fixed time at which they no longer have to operate, 
they're still actually interested in both operating a good service and in making sure that these pilots successfully transition. So the pilots are going to not just leave, they're going to have to be trained on new aircraft. So it's the pilots that are shifting, the aircraft are not shifting. But the air ambulance service isn't willing to make availability concessions to allow the pilots to be trained. So the, the outgoing service can't release the pilots for training because it's got to still meet its availability targets. And it's actually taking a lot of pride in meeting those targets. So they're trying to deliver according to the contract. They're trying to make sure that things are ready for the transition. And they're trying really hard to convince the procurer that they're headed for failure because the incoming operator is never going to meet the requirements. And I think, Drew, this is a sort of a fascinating intersection of, of, of contracts because, you know, how, how you've described it there is, is, is something that, you know, may be familiar to our, to our listeners where you've got this, um, this incumbent sort of contractor who's, who's doing all of the work and, and then, Again, you've 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 tendered it, and you know maybe you've found a cheaper price. Maybe you found some better performance. You've got another company that's going to come in and take over the service. Uh, at the same time, they're going to take over the people that are involved in the old contract. Yet you've got an existing contract where you're still measuring and rewarding the performance under that existing contract in a way that doesn't sort of motivate, incentivate, or create the opportunity for you know, the, the existing provider to actually support the new provider in kind of any way. And this is kind of one where structurally you've, you've created these, this situation, which um, really doesn't serve your, your purpose at that point in time. Yeah. So you've incentivized the old provider to meet the availability targets. You've incentivized the new provider to meet the availability targets, but you haven't incentivized either of them to do what's actually necessary <laughs> to meet the availability targets. My favorite detail of this is often when you have this sort of competition, the way that the new provider is able to underbid is by being innovative. They might have a new way of delivering the service. They might have new technologies. They may have better efficiencies. It may just be that the old provider, because they thought they were the incumbent, has been racking up the prices and there's a profit margin that can be reduced. In this case, we know what was going to happen. The new provider was planning to deliver more availability with less cost with the exact same set of pilots. And so the only literal way they can do that is to make all of the pilots work for longer hours. And so this was the plan, except the pilots weren't contracted to do that. The pilots were still contracted by the old provider. And so we're going to get into what this means for the pilots in a minute. Um, but let's talk about the incoming provider. Now, there is nothing in this paper and there is nothing in the data that says that this outcoming provider was doing anything dishonest or wrong. I'm quite interested to read the rest of the research that they're publishing around this transition that they were studying. But at least in this paper, we have the incoming provider's view from their point of view. And from their point of view, they were being honest, they were being clear, they had availability targets, they knew that they couldn't meet those immediately, and they were honest about that. They negotiated that to make sure that the overall availability of the service maintained. So the way this was going to happen was the procurement agency, the air ambulance service, was acquiring extra helicopters and aircraft to operate during the transition period. So and a lot of these, for example, were military aircraft. So military aircraft and pilots are filling the gap before the new provider can get fully up to speed. 
So really the question then is how do you measure availability? Is it according to the contract, which is, you know, is the new provider able to provide pilots and service, pilots and aircraft? Or is it according to the patient, is there an aircraft to take the patient? Or is it sort of according to this negotiated deal where you, along with the extra aircraft, the contractor's um, obligations are being met? They're just not being met by the contractor. They're being met by the interim arrangement that everyone has agreed to, even though that's not strictly what the original contract was. Um, so who gets to decide which definition? Well, it depends who you are. You know, if you're the media trying to drum up how bad the service is, then you try to use the lowest possible figure, which is how many aircraft are being provided by the new contractor. If you're a politician trying to claim that the service is fine, then you exclude all of the reasons why something might not be there and you just talk about the sort of maximum possible figure. But the incoming, from the incoming provider's point of view, they're sort of doing their best and they're meeting their targets and they're meeting like officially what counts and they're still getting hammered by the media and therefore also hammered by the procurement agency for not doing a good enough job. So Drew, we've got these kind of real multiple ideas of availability like you've mentioned. You know, what does availability mean? availability mean to the patient? What does it mean to the air ambulance service? What does it mean to the contractor? So, you know, we can have these situations where maybe the operator itself or the incoming operator is only providing these planes 50% of the time. But when we look at when actual call-outs occur, maybe 97% of patients get the plane that they need. So the 50% doesn't really matter from a service point of view, like you said, unless you're trying to actually negotiate, um, you know, penalties in a contract. You know, it's, it's the 97% of patients who who get the plane when they need them. And on the other direction, you know, you might have planes available 90% of the time. So between 50% and 90% is a huge service availability uplift. But, you know, maybe um, in terms of the call-outs, the contractor's, you know, hitting a target of 98%. So you've got these kind of really things where you've got these, you know, different different measures of, you know, the same service that are vastly different depending on, you know, what you're counting and, and what you're looking for. Yeah. And interestingly, the paper sort of never draws a final conclusion that, you know, was the service good or was the service bad? Was there a stuff up? Was there not a stuff up? It really tells a story that this entirely depends on your point of view and how you choose to present the figures. But the people that are caught in the middle of all of this are the pilots. So let's talk a little bit about the pilots. Okay. So when you're a pilot, you've basically got competing considerations from a sort of raw aviation safety point of view, the default is always you don't fly. You know, if there's bad weather, the safe thing to do is stay on the ground. If there's a problem with the aircraft, the bad thing to do is the good thing to do is stay on the ground. If you're feeling tired, the safe thing to do is declare that you're tired and stay on the ground. But from a patient point of view, availability is the desirable thing. You need to get somewhere you want the plane to fly because that's going to keep you personally as safe and as healthy as possible assuming that the plane doesn't crash. So the pilots are always in this sort of weird negotiated situation where doing the right thing could be in either direction. But then this is compounded by their employment situation. So the new operator is planning all along to use the same pilots with new aircraft. And that's the basis for their contract is just assuming if we win, there are going to be all of these unemployed pilots we'll be able to pick them up because there'll be no other employer 
it'll be easy for them to make the transition, it's just we grab them. We're going to employ them working longer shifts than they're currently working. And I don't know if they just sort of assumed that the pilots would go along with that or assumed that the pilots wouldn't have a choice, but that's what they planned. But the pilots never agreed to those new arrangements. The pilots weren't in a contractual situation with the new operator. The pilots at the time of the tender were in a contractual situation with the old operator. And they were already feeling overworked and stressed. And then they go into this transition period where basically their employer is going out of business. So they're feeling just as hard done by as the old operator. They're feeling that this service that they've been doing isn't valued. They're expected to move the new operator, but they haven't been promised anything. They don't have clear contracts already in place. They don't have an agreement for work hours, but they're expected to be doing stuff during the transition period, like training onto the new aircraft so that they can get these jobs with the new employer. And then at the same time, there are difficult labor negotiations because there needs to actually be an agreement in place for who's going to pay for the training. Um, are these new shifts viable? So essentially, the pilots end up in an industrial dispute with the new operator. So the new operator is not going to be able to immediately fly because the new operator doesn't have pilots. Um, and they won't have pilots until the pilots have actually signed an employment agreement. But at the same time, we've got air ambulances that are not in the air, and the media is making it look as if this is basically because of a pilot strike. So the pilots are in part getting blamed for the lack of availability, so they're feeling lots and lots of pressure. Partly because you know, they're getting blamed for lack of air ambulances, and partly because they're out of work. This is the only work that's going to be available to them is if they do eventually sign some sort of deal with the new operator. So, you know, for everyone else, availability is a political figure or it's whether you get an air ambulance or it's a contract term that determines penalties. For pilots, availability is basically how much they have to work. And meaning availability is, has a sort of key thing to do with their, uh, basically just conditions of work and conditions of life. Andrew, I think, you know, we'll get to practical takeaways at the end, as we always do, but I think it's worth, you know, pointing out here a, a little bit of a, a practical takeaway when we talk about these procurement processes. You know, any time that a company is, um, you know, making, you know, forward commitments that uh, they're going to deliver something that's that's better or cheaper or greater than what's currently being done, I think it's really, really important that the organisation understands the assumptions that have been made in that in that procurement process because i mean here like you've mentioned just there you know these this this new service provider has come along you know promising whether the same or greater availability at at a cheaper price you know but it's prefaced on a whole bunch of assumptions uh to do with you know contracting these pilots and the pilots working longer hours and and a whole lot of things that you know there's no substance behind that there's no there's no agreements in place there's no uh no existing practice that uh, that can be referred to, and you know, at the end of the day, it's you know, at this point in time, it's just a whole bunch of empty promises that uh, that this particular company uh, asserts that it can it can deliver. So, you know, I think I think that's just a, a practical call out. I wanted to call out kind of now, which is like, you know, if, if if someone's promising something better, bigger, faster, and cheaper, you know, you know, make sure you take the effort to understand how how that company think it's going to do that and whether or not there's any sort of like facts or, or evidence to suggest that it can actually do that. Yeah, con contracts and the commercial market aren't magic. 
you know, they can make money go up and down, but they can't create extra planes or create extra pilot hours. So unless there's a like genuine technology improvement, then there's always going to be some sort of trade-off. You know, we see, see the same thing in the gig economy. You know, the gig economy is basically about contractual differences. It doesn't magically create you know, faster ways of getting from A to B or reduce the cost of getting someone from A to B or reduce the wages that it takes for someone to work for a certain number of hours. And so, you know, unless you believe that the industry is currently already corrupted with huge profit margins, which is usually not a safe assumption, then any slack has to come from somewhere. It has to come from working people harder or charging people more or reducing the safety and quality of the service. Yeah, Drew, I think what we're seeing in broadly in industry, at least at the moment, is that you know there's not huge profit margins in the supply chain that is just waiting there to be picked off. So I think we've got to question any aspect of our supply chain where there seems to be the opportunity for significant improvement. But Drew, let's talk a little bit about the conclusions of, of this paper. So do you, want to, do you want to sort of talk about what the overall findings were? Okay. So before we do, David, I'm actually going to throw to you now to explain some of the theory for us. Uh, because the guiding sort of principle they're using here is the idea of a boundary object. So can you explain to us sort of what a boundary object is and how that plays into? This might be my punishment for throwing you uh, under the bus earlier in relation to the authors. But, um, you know, a colleague of mine, Ralph Reeve, did a, did a master's research thesis on looking at um, contracts as boundary objects between parties, you know, between a client and a, and a contractor. And, and I guess this idea is that... Um, Maybe, maybe this uh, this metric that we're talking about here is in terms of the availability of the the air ambulance service is actually a boundary object. So we're not looking at the specific criteria or the specific requirements. We're looking at more of a, a framing kind of object or criteria. And so, in that research example that I gave, is that you know maybe the specific terms and conditions of the contract aren't as important as the overall. Uh, you know, deliverables of the contract itself. So what, we, what we've got here is a boundary object. So we're looking at something that defines the, the boundaries of a particular service or activity. So notwithstanding the definitions, you know, what counts as an available aircraft, whether it's, 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 it's late or, or whether it's, um, you know, not available or whether it's uh, caused by a blizzard, as you mentioned earlier, Drew, you know, all that stuff doesn't become as important as kind of like this overall boundary around the particular service itself. So what what we can think about is that, you know, we don't have to worry about the detail as much as what the overall kind of position is. So if we get these boundary conditions right, then the details kind of can take care of themselves. And if we take care of the details, it may not necessarily result in the, you know, overall condition being what we want it to be. So Drew, I, I think in my understanding, um, of, of of this, you know, these these things as boundary objects becomes just, you know, what's the, you know, the overall framing of the the relationship or the situation. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, David. Um, yeah, so so if we leave aside the specifics of how we define availability, looking at the at boundary objects causes us to just ask, what does availability sort of like fundamentally mean to different people? So if you're applying a very sort of commercial logic to things, if you're trying to maximize your profits as a contractor, then availability is something that you want to minimize. Availability isn't good. Availability costs you money. So you actually want availability to be as low as you can get away with. Less availability means less pilots, less planes in the air, less fuel, more time for maintenance, overall lower costs. 
So unless you actually get hit with a performance penalty, which is bad, you want availability to be low. You want it to, you know, so the targets in contracts are basically floors. You want to get as low to that floor as possible without crossing it. So from a commercial point of view, that's what availability means. From an air ambulance service, and remember everyone involved here is part of an air ambulance service. Availability is your mission, it's your pride. High availability means you get the patient there and you save their life. High availability means you are meeting the public's demands. You're providing a high value service. You're recognized by politicians and the media as doing well. So we've got these like almost conflicting meanings of availability that drive really quite different types of understandings and behaviors. And I think we can almost sort of, and this is like why this is published as like a safety paper and why we're talking about it in a safety podcast is in this particular thing, we're talking about availability, but safety sits in that exact same space. You, commercially, safety is something that logically an organization wants to minimize. You want to meet your acceptable standards of safety and anything more than meeting your acceptable standards is going to cost you unnecessary money and create competitive disadvantage against people who are bidding for the same contracts as you are with lower levels of safety and therefore with lower costs. But as an organizational value, we really care about safety and we believe in it. So we want to maximize safety. And in fact, the aspiration is not as less safety as possible. The aspiration is often explicitly, we're trying to get perfect safety. So you've got this same sort of boundary object and this same sort of contradictory message that is something that we're trying to get as low as possible commercially. We're trying to get as high as possible based on our values. And it's worth sort of understanding those different meanings and those different logics, because otherwise they, we sort of lean towards one or the other without ever acknowledging that sometimes things are actually shifting meanings. We really notice this when we talk about the pilots. So for the pilots, they've got not just availability, but they've also got aviation safety. So they've got professional pride in being safe aviators, but they've also got professional pride in being an air ambulance service willing to get the patient there no matter the weather, no matter the difficulties in the way. And then you've got this third meaning of availability, which is because it's important to other people, availability becomes a source of power in negotiations. Availability is something that the pilots can offer. Um, if the pilots are willing to work for longer hours, that offers more availability to other people. If the pilots say, no, no, we can't do that, then that gives them a like, reason to refuse things and say, you know, we'd love to give you this availability, but you know, pilot safety and uh, flight safety and fatigue management, we just can't do that. David, you look like you want to jump in. Yeah, look, we, we see this a lot through, um, you know, I, I mean, we mentioned on-time running in the rail industry and, you know, like um, train drivers have the same opportunity to um, position themselves in the middle of this uh, this reliability on-time running kind of performance, you know, because they they can can take the decision about whether something is uh is is safe enough to operate or whether they think something's safe enough to operate and i guess um you know we, we you talk we you know in this example we're talking about healthcare and it's the same in in, in a whole bunch of situations where you know people want to do their job um and we also expect them to be safe so you know done some work with a lot of utility organizations where you know when when there's service outages you know, I think people pride themselves on, you know, get turning the lights back on, 
and are prepared to take, you know, and prepared to try to figure out what's the appropriate trade-off between, you know, safety and, you know, the availability or, or you know, the return to or the reinstatement of a particular service. So, you know, I think, I think Drew, this, this happens in lots of operational environments where we've got the, the core operational deliverable and we've got this uh, expectation of, of, you know, you know, in this instance or, or in our instance from the podcast point of view, you know, safety sort of sitting, you know, sometimes competing alongside that. Yeah, and, and it's also not that unusual that the core operational deliverable is as important or even more important than worker safety. Because when we're talking about like getting the lights back on, that's also getting the power back onto hospitals. That's also making sure that the person who needs like continuous power for their medical devices at home is getting that continuous power. Uh, you pr- providing people with continuous safe drinking water, providing people with transport. Uh, th- these are not th- these can be life critical things. Um, you know, it's not as simple as just our oh, safety versus your operational availability. As if operational availability doesn't matter as much. And maybe Drew, I'll just throw this out there, and and you know, I guess in this trade off between the core operational deliverable and safety, you know, I think at the end of the day, whether you know the tension within organisations is that we want to maximize the core operational deliverable for a level of safety that we can get away with. So this idea that, you know, this idea of where you mentioned earlier about flaws and and uh and you know and and, and performance. So, you know, I, I don't think this this might be controversial, Drew, I'm interested in your point. You know, even though organizations say we want the maximum level of safety for the, you know, minimum acceptable operational deliverable. I actually think it's, you know, organisations want the maximum level of operational deliverable for the level of safety that's no greater than what we can get away with. Yeah, David, I don't think I'd like to make a sort of like generalizable judgment there. But what I will what I will do is sort of support the message in this paper is that just because we've put both of these things into our contract doesn't mean that we've really clarified what that meaning is. And so it lets these things, the metrics that we're using have different meanings going like upwards and downwards. So, you know, the in this case, the opera, the air ambulance service, the procurement organization, the message that they're sending upwards to their political masters is to make it look like there's maximum availability. And then the message they're sending downwards to the subcontractor is trying to penalize them for poor availability. So that, that's why it's sort of interesting and important to look at what we mean by these different measures. The next interesting point that the authors make is they say, look, there are these problems with measuring availability and it's not a good measure. But it's also very obviously not a good measure. You know, sure, a percentage is very simplified, but also explaining the problems with a percentage is pretty easy to do. You know, using our example of on-time train running, it's pretty easy to explain why number of trains on time is not actually a good measure of how well your train system is running. And the stakeholders aren't stupid. So why are key stakeholders focusing so much on such a simplified metric? And the authors say that they can actually explain that. And they say that having like just this simplified broad metric, even though it's got real problems, even though it may be statistically completely invalid, they say it has leading qualities in practice and thus might be more effective at promoting positive change than might be predicted. 
Um, so that's a direct quote. They basically say that, you know, even though it's bad, it still may be effective. You, they, they say that, you know, even if we're not really in agreement about what the right measure is of availability, at least if we have a figure and we all agree on that figure, it puts some sort of stability into the system and lets us then use that as our starting point for conversations. Use it as our starting point for investigating poor availability. Use it as our starting point for agreeing that we need to improve availability and talking about how we're going to do that. And I guess in practice, Drew, maybe using that as a as a framing for decisions as well. So, you know, we, we talk a little bit about, you know, metrics being kind of kind of bad reference points for for operational decisions. But I think what we're saying here is that even if the way that we calculate the metric kind of isn't exactly the 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 best representation of underlying performance, if it points the organization in a certain direction in the way that it kind of thinks about its its purpose and and its decisions, then you know maybe it it makes decisions in a certain way which 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 isn't all bad, which is kind of interesting. I hadn't I hadn't sort of thought about metrics in in this way until I read this paper, which is um you know something might not be measuring what we want it to, but it might be framing decisions in a way that we actually do want it to. Yeah, to, to be honest, David, I don't really buy the argument. <laughs> I, I I think it's sort of I, I think it's sort of like a sophisticated way of saying. Oh, yeah, it's a bad measure, but it's just one source of information. And, you know, if it sparks good conversations, that's positive. The, the reason I don't buy it is you could have those conversations anyway. You could have those investigations anyway. You would know that availability was bad anyway, because you've got to put in all these extra arrangements, borrowing aircraft from the military, because you don't have good availability. I don't really think you've got good evidence that the percentage measure of availability and using that as a metric and publishing that as a metric is, is helping the situation at all. I think you've got the conversations anyway. I think you've got the negotiations anyway. I think you've got the shared understanding and the shared lack of understanding anyway. If anything, I think they're trying to use this simplified figure to hide the problem. And it was just that the problem was so big that even though they could manipulate the percentage figure, the public still knew that there were bad things going on because they could see the military jets operating the air ambulance service. Um, you know, I think for all of the stakeholders, they were trying to use that figure to achieve their political ends. And it was just that the situation was so bad that they had to do the investigation. So, yeah, I, I could see it as possible. I just think you'd need better evidence that you know, the, this, the measure was actually helping rather than the general situation was going to lead there anyway. Yeah, I think that's an important. So, so thanks, Drew. That's, that, I think that's an important point. I think... Um, you know, I, I personally wouldn't underestimate the pressures and the tensions that get, you know, come into, you know, organisations based on some of these metrics. So even though maybe the conditions exist, you know, the fact that you've actually put a number around it and it might be 75% when your target was 95%. You know, I think I think when you actually start to to label things and you do have, have an indicator around things, I think that, you know, that creates you know, pressures and tensions that automatically make something really important to an organisation. So even though those conditions might exist and you see the military aircraft and you know maybe you're not you're not delivering the service as you might want to, once it starts, as we said at the start of this episode, once it starts becoming a number, once a whole bunch of stakeholders start talking about it, you know, maybe it does actually, you know, focus an organisation's attention around, you know, what can we do to do this? And, you know, for a while it might be, how do we manage the number? But, you know, if it's 75%, 76%, 77%, you can only massage that number to a point before you actually start having to make, you know, some, some you know, different operational decisions about how you run that service. So, you know, I, I'd love to see the research around, you know, in, in, in these core operational metrics, how it actually frames, 
you know, the different decisions that organizational make, organizations make. Yeah, Dave, the other point I'd throw in there is that where I think this gets really negative is when there is very little that can be done except for the massaging of the number. And I think that's, that's sim- similar to the case here, right? We've got a limited number of pilots. <laughs> We've got a limited number of hours they can work. No amount of pressure is going to miraculously create new pilots. And so that, that, that's why I, and we have a similar thing in like in healthcare with waiting times, is things get reduced to certain key performance indicators for the healthcare system. Yes, that drives media attention, less that, yes, that drives political attention, but if anything, it leads to oversimplified interventions. You know, we get the government then manipulating the figures about how many new nurses they're providing, how many new beds they're providing. They're just using new simplified statistics to talk about the things that they're doing to fix the problem, which has been oversimplified. And you nowhere are we actually graduating more doctors, graduating more nurses, putting more money into the system. So there's, a, there's always going to be a limit as to how much that pressure is actually helping rather than just deriving perverse behaviour. Yeah, Drew, and I think that's, yeah, I mean, it's a great point where, where the pressure on the system, I guess I was, I was, you know, more thinking where there is sort of freedom of movement and, and opportunity, but, you know, where we've got some genuine system constraints, then that pressure, you know, obviously, you know, isn't going to be constructive in the way that, you know, I'd, I'd like it to be, you know, we've got some genuine, you know, in this case, we've got certain number of pilots, certain number of aircraft, certain, certain, uh, number of dollars inside the contract and so you know all these constraints are are fixed and so i i think that's a great point drew i think at that point in time additional pressure in the system isn't going to change operational outcomes additional pressure in the system is just going to kind of you know make people frame things differently yeah but but one other point they make and this this point i think they're very persuasive on is they explain that the reason why the procurer organization is focused on this availability percentage is because of the fact that it's uh, tangible and comprehensible to the outside stakeholders. So remember, the whole part of this whole contract change was they wanted to use more sophisticated ways of measuring and tracking availability. They knew the problems with their old way of measuring it. They'd thought about it, they'd looked at other contracts that had worked better, had provided better incentives. They'd changed the definitions, changed the measurement, changed the contracts. But because the media and the politicians are focusing on this raw percentage, the whole organisation ends up back to focusing on the raw percentage and putting pressure on the contractors for the raw percentage again. And I think that explains a lot about why organisations get stuck with things like lost time injury rates. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they don't see the arguments. It's not that they don't see the evidence of the problems. It's that this is a figure which other people value and find understandable. You can't internally replace it with something sophisticated at the same time as you're externally reporting something simplified because your internal systems have to link up with those outside systems. Um, You know, you can't with a straight face try to manage this outside number and then within your organisation, tell a totally different story about what matters, what's valued, what's measured. Yeah, look, I think, Drew, that's a great point. And I, I kind of let you, I thought you might even scream louder about the analogy between the availability um, percentage that we've spoken about throughout this whole episode and lost time injury rate for safety. But I think, yeah, you know, how you describe these is, um, is the reality. And, and while we're still 
you know, having this debate, you know, for you know, 20, 30 years later about uh about metrics in in safety is because you know this this simplified metric is tangible, it's understandable, you know, it's it's communicatable. And you know, even though inside organizations there's there's you know a broad understanding that maybe it's not quite representative of of overall safety system performance. It it's not representative of kind of like how we think about things. At the end of the day, kind of like how many people did you hurt? And at the end of the day, in the in the conversation we're having today about air ambulance services, at the end of the day, how how often were planes available to fly? And I don't know how we're ever going to get away from that desire to boil things all the way down to a very simple way of understanding, is the company doing what we want it to do? I, I don't think we can ever get away from it, but I do think we can try our best not to contribute to it. And we're getting to takeaways at the moment, but I think this is where we should be very sceptical of things like making companies publish their safety figures and doing things like you know making people on the ASX include certain figures in their um, annual reporting, whether it's for safety or your environment, sustainability, community goals. Those seem like good ideas. Those seem like they're increasing the amount of information. Uh, but we should be just sort of really cautious about how that causes people to have to then dumb down how they're thinking about those things on the boundary and therefore also thinking about those things within their organisation. What we think is transparency may actually be sort of forced simplification. Andrew, I don't think that's even in these non-financial aspects of of organisational performance. I don't think that's any different to any aspect of organisational performance. So, you know, we could you, we could have said the same thing just there about, you know, profit. You know, we we know that you know there's a lot of pressure on you know accounting treatment of 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 finances within organisations based on you know delivering a certain level of profit or or statutory profit or underlying profit or or whatever you know people are paying attention to in that organisation. So I think any time we put a number on on an aspect of organisational performance, we need to understand that it's a gross oversimplification of the the operating performance of that company in respect to that metric. And um, the company's going to be doing whatever they can to tell a story around that number or or make that number be something that aligns with the story they want to tell. And, you know, I think that's the that's the broad takeaway in relation to kind of organizational performance from this paper. Yeah, no, no thanks for that, David. Should we, should we move from broad takeaways into our specific takeaways? Yeah, tell us what you think, Drew. You know, tell us what you think we can we can do about this. Sure. So I think the first takeaway is that the case study in this paper shows very clearly that the argument about metrics and indicators isn't just some academic problem about what is statistically valid. This is a really good example of how choice of a particular metric leads to people repeatedly spending time and effort improving the indicator at the expense of safety. That was happening even before this whole case study in the old contract that they had, and it was illustrated all through the new contract that you Having metrics that aren't quite what you want them to be leads to perverse behaviour. Andrew, we know that you know you mentioned you know we, we've linked this to lost time injuries, and we know we've known for decades that uh, putting a putting a, a target or, or focus on on lost time injuries you know changes the way people classify things. So spending time improving the indicator at the expense of trying to improve the the underlying conditions that are causing incidents in the organisation. Second one is that. When we put indicators on things, they can make complex and less measurable factors overshadowed or invisible. 
Um, that takeaway is almost a direct quote from the paper. I just thought it was a really important takeaway. Is you just be aware it's not just that the metric itself might be a problem, but there are other things that might sort of fall into the background, get less attention because we're focusing on the metric. And the third one is specifically about financial penalties. Uh, so this is when we're subcontracting. When we start to tie things like financial penalties to indicators, that can create in counterintuitive incentives that can actually work directly against what we're trying to achieve. David, uh, I'm not a lawyer, you're not a lawyer, you know much more about contracts than I do, but this is really a sort of expert field that non-experts should steer away from is just trying to put clauses into contracts doesn't always achieve what you think it does, particularly when it comes to things like financial penalties. Yeah, Andrew, I think I think I think it, like you said, and even even targets inside contracts. So you mentioned, you know, if, if I've got a if I've got a you know contractual obligation to provide a ninety five percent availability for an air, air ambulance service, like you mentioned earlier, and and you know this in the last you know that's a quarterly measured outcome, and for the last two and a half months, I'm tracking at ninety eight percent. And or whatever, and I work out that actually in the next two weeks I actually don't have to do provide any service to meet my contractual obligation. Then I can move, you know, aircraft and pilots for those, you know, two weeks onto a different contract where I might be, you know, able to catch up. You know, that that target and that you know financial reward, you know, doesn't actually serve my intended purpose, which is to maximise the availability of this particular contract. So I think, you know, how we think about you know objectives and targets and and reward in these situations, you know, is is really important. And I don't I don't have the answer necessarily, Drew, but I think a lot of times in these arrangements and you know, we just, you know, put these numbers, put these timeframes, you know, put these outcomes together and we don't necessarily think about how that shapes, you know, decision making for companies in the supply chain that, you know, are already under a lot of pressure and are just going to do whatever they can to, you know, maximize their gain in any way. And you know, we should, you know, judge them for doing that. You know, that's kind of like the business model that we've created for them. Exactly. So, David, the question we asked this week was, do safety performance indicators mean the same thing to different stakeholders? So the very short answer, I think, is yes. <laughs> so it's slightly longer answer is that metrics sit on the boundaries between stakeholders. So they always seem to be forming that communication function. Uh, but we should just be cautious that they can be communicating different things in different directions on that boundary. So Drew, that's it for this week. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes uh, to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>